0: Welcome to the Spatial Reality Podcast, your resource for authentic conversations about spatial computing technologies. I'm Sean Higgins, your host. Every few weeks, I'll interview an expert to learn how this technology is changing a huge variety of fields and industries and what we can do to prepare for what's next. Today's guest, Sean Gorman, is currently the CEO of Zephyr.xyz, an early stage mapping startup. Previously, he was an engineering manager at Snapchat, building technology at the intersection of mapping and augmented reality. He joined Snapchat as part of their acquisition of Pixelate Earth, a crowdsourced 3D mapping platform for AR where he was the CEO. Before that, he was the head of technical product management at Digital Globe, founder of Timber.io and GOIQ, and served stints at Esri and in Academia as a research professor. He has deep experience, as you can see, with satellite imagery, crowdsourcing, AR, next-gen machine learning tools, algorithm reusability, and data science accessibility, among a whole raft of other topics, and we're thrilled to have him here today. Sean, welcome. First of all, thank you for joining me today. One of the first things that I love to do because everybody gives me a different answer to this question i ask what does the term spatial computing mean to you
1: yeah it's a good question because i'm a geographer by training and so when i hear spatial i generally think of geospatial and so when i think of geospatial computing initially it was like oh this must be related to like geographic information systems but as we got more involved in spatial computing from an augmented reality perspective It was really the fusion of those two things. We're realizing that in the grand scheme of things for spatial computing to work at a global scale, you're gonna need geospatial coordinates, which was how I got involved in it and my background became useful and relevant. So I kind of have a weird take on it because my background had a very defined understanding of what spatial was and spatial analysis. And then computer science has a slightly different understanding of that. But the reality of actually deploying these things into something like Google's Live View as very much a fusion of spatial and geospatial together, which was really exciting for me because the stuff that I knew and my friends that I worked with knew became relevant and we could get involved in all of it.
0: Yeah, so this is actually a perfect segue into my next question, which is can you tell me a bit about Pixelate Earth? What was Pixelate Earth? What did you do? How did this whole Snap thing
1: Yeah, we, myself and some other colleagues, we were working at Maxar, which used to be called Digital Globe. They're a satellite imagery company. So they have a constellation of satellites that take pictures of the earth. And those are the pictures you see in Google Maps and Apple Maps and Mapbox, pretty much any kind of 2D or 3D mapping application for global scale imagery. Most of that comes from Maxar. So, we were working there on machine learning technologies and building 3D maps and things along those lines. And while we were there, a lot of folks started coming to Maxar asking about using their data for autonomy and augmented reality. And it was really exciting. Companies like Niantic were building Pokemon Go and there was a bunch of autonomous vehicle companies that were trying to figure out how to navigate cars through cities. And we started to look at some of these problems. But at the time, as we looked at it, we began to realize that satellites are great for looking at the tops of buildings. So if you're playing like a video game, like Flight Simulator, um, satellite imagery is awesome because that's the perspective, you're above the ground. But the downside of satellites is as you get closer to the ground, the satellites just don't have a good angle. And especially in cities with big buildings, the buildings occlude. And even if you get a bunch of angles, when you start building 3D models with something like photogrammetry, that lack of low angle views means that the closer you get to the ground, the more artifacts you get in the reconstruction. It starts to look like a Salvador Dali painting. Everything's (laughs) melted. The tops of the buildings are brilliant, awesome. Mountain ranges look fabulous. You look at like cars on the street or curbs or storefronts it's that's a chocolate mess and same thing if you take google maps it's aerial imagery it's closer and it's better but put it into 3d mode and tilt down and get close to the buildings it's still melty and gnarly and so we started thinking about it and realized to solve this problem of really accurate 3d reconstruction was probably going to take multiple sensors that you really wanted sensors on the ground and you went sensors in the air and potentially sensors in space. And then how would you fuse those things together? And that wasn't something that a satellite company was interested in. They were interested in selling satellite imagery. and We're basically saying the satellite imagery is not going to get the job done. So we ended up leaving Maxar and starting Pixelate. And the idea with Pixelate was that we could take multiple sources of data, both industrial sources like satellites and airplanes that are collecting imagery, also crowdsourcing that people on the ground with gopros and mobile phones could collect this data on the ground and then we could fuse it with the aerial data and then get those two things to come together to give us a fixed 3d representation and then that fixed 3d representation not only can you use it for 3d models that you see in something like google earth or google maps or video game it also gives you the key descriptors that you need for a visual positioning system to do augmented reality because when you want to put an augmented thing in reality it needs to know where reality is so if you're going to have a a 3d pokemon or a 3d fixed asset that needs to nest accurately within the real world so you need a map of the real world to be able to place these objects and move them around and so that that Pretty quickly became the area that we got the most interest in, which was interesting because we had come from traditional mapping, but it was this AR map for machines that ended up getting the most traction. And we pretty quickly started working with several of the AR companies out there to try to figure out how to map these cities or a campus at scale and to do it economically.
0: Yeah. So it sounds like spatial computing has always been Pixelate's DNA from the very beginning. As you talk about bringing together these different technologies I've I have a few questions about that. First of all, what's the biggest challenge of using all of these different technologies together? I understand there may be differences of coordinates, there may be problems of you talked about crowdsourcing, the quality of the data that may be captured by the public. What how What does that actually look like, (laughs) technically speaking, to be able to pull together a data set like that? And we don't have to go too deep into the technical details, but I'd love to know at a high level how that works.
1: There's two orders of problems. The first one ended up being solvable. The second one arguably still remains to be solved. The first order problem, think about you're on the ground and you're looking forward, right? And so if you Took what you're looking at and painted everything with a ray across space of what you were seeing most of those rays are horizontal if you did the same thing with an airplane or a satellite and a point or a line and drew it down most of those lines would all be vertical and so you end up with a bunch of perspectives that are horizontal and a bunch of perspectives that are vertical and what you're trying to do is to get those things to align with each other mm-hmm. and find a common point that's being looked at the same way and so it's they're just like orthogonal to each other but one's pointing down one's going sideways so getting those two perspectives to perfectly line up and co-register together is a really hard mathematical problem you know, it was funny when we first started we we're Lucky to get some advice and guidance from Brian McClendon, who had been one of the founders for Keyhole, which became Google Earth, and then ran the Google Geo engineering team for a long time. And is brilliant and super well-known. And and early on, we were talking to this, you know, he said, yeah, this is a problem we worked on at Google for a long time because we had street view imagery and we had aerial imagery. Obviously, we wanted to get those two things to line up, but it's a really hard mathematical problem. You know, um, good luck with it. And we figured it out in, a, in an open way where we were blogging about it a lot and we we're working with, with several companies on doing pilots and testing this out, mapping cities and campuses for them. And our approach was very much focused on economically, how do you make this scalable? Because a lot of these folks that weren't Google or Apple didn't have Street View fleets. They didn't have airplanes to go and fly and collect imagery and Google and Apple spent billions of dollars to create the assets like look around cars and street view cars to collect all of this imagery and if you're the other companies out there looking at needing to spend billions of dollars to create these mapping assets that are needed for an AR map of the world or at least of cities major cities you're also looking at billions of dollars and that's a huge chunk of change to go and spend. So if you can find a way to do that more economically without the fleet, you can do it with crowdsourcing, then that is a huge, huge uptick. So we became strategically interesting to a couple of folks out there because we had one piece of that puzzle. And so that's how we eventually ended up over at Snap and working on the problem within Snap. Again, it's one small piece of a much larger puzzle, but it was was an interesting piece that was fun to work on. So that was the first big problem of putting those things together. The second big problem, and ended up being the much harder one to solve, was that the GPS on commodity phones like your iPhone, your Google Pixel, wasn't good enough and accurate enough, especially in urban areas, to be able to do the stitching together. If we had a GoPro that has telemetry in it, which is just a little bit better, but enough better that we get all these things to stitch together and co-register, it was great. And there's a variety of kind of 360 cameras you can get with varying levels of Slightly better GPS up to what Street View uses, which is other kind of like dirty little secret that most of the people who do the Street View collection for Google are contractors. And when they're not collecting for Google, you can hire them for a much more discounted rate to go and collect imagery for you. And so we we definitely took advantage of that while we're at Pixelate, and you can get affordable um, imagery with really good cameras. And so we had this combination of crowdsourcing with people out with GoPros. But the number of people with GoPros is a small fraction of the people with mobile phones, right? And the number of people out there with mobile phones collecting for the big social media or collecting for themselves is vast. So that ended up being a pretty big problem was this gps not being accurate enough and we tried to use like aerial lidar as an assist and that worked great for everything but just wasn't quite good enough for for the commodity phone gps and so that's still an outstanding problem right that why you can't still do mass collection of of data with mobile phones to do these 3d reconstructions there's lots of workarounds and different approaches that people are taking to it but just the fundamental kind of crappiness of GPS that we all experience when we go into a city and it puts us on the wrong side of the street to catch an Uber, or it puts us on the wrong block for some store that we're trying to find. And visual positioning systems in cities help that, but it's a chicken and egg kind of thing, right? That are these things that are challenging. And so that's something that, you know, that all of the major AR players in one way or another are trying to figure out is how to crowdsource this data, how to make it more economically viable to update and build these maps. Because again,
0: it's billions of dollars. So this is super fascinating. I wonder, as you're talking about this scale at which people are working with this technology, people, companies with very deep pockets, What does this mean for, let's say, us mere mortals, right? A small business like a factory or some sort of larger facility that's interested. The way you're talking about it right now, it seems like a lot of large companies are working toward making this work. And then at some point, the technology may trickle down to be usable by consumers and or smaller enterprises. So what what does that mean for us in the future? What are some of the use cases? Is there anything that we should be paying attention to with regards to this technology? Yeah, I think a lot of it is
1: trying to lay the foundation for the mythical killer use case for AR. And I think that's something that all of these big players and what will eventually drive the trickle down opportunities is what is that use case that makes AR indispensable to everybody. Like you look at something like GPS and getting to the point where you have assisted GPS on mobile phones that allows for navigation. And that became the, the killer app for things like Google Maps. And then all of a sudden everybody was using GPS in some form or another. And then that opened up a whole bunch of other use cases that we might not have thought of originally all the way down to Pokemon Go where it becomes a big location-based gaming enabler. Um, and I think it's a similar thing for AR right now of what is going to be the big unlock that makes AR indispensable for everybody. And there's amazing things like a snap, all of the filters and... Like my daughters if i leave my phone unattended will go straight to the phone go straight to snap and start making dog ears and they'll do that for hours which is amazing that it creates that kind of engagement and obviously it's very sticky and people love it but it's arguably not the killer app right it's not the thing that's indispensable for me on a day-to-day basis that i'm going to have to use my daughter might argue otherwise but i i think a lot of that's what the city scale investments are driven by that if I think a lot of these large companies feel like there is that killer app out there if we can enable more pragmatic things that are important to lead our day-to-day lives. So what's that mm. utilitarian use case that we that we need that makes AR indispensable? The reason I would put on the glasses every day or I would hold up my phone and engage with it. And I think the city scale thing is that infrastructure that I that a lot of companies see that if we can enable a city then we'll find that killer use case that that opens up things for folks.
0: I tend to ask people about AR, VR, what do these things look like five years into the future? Mostly what people tell me is they're looking for contextual information updated in their line of sight. Do you think it's likely that this is going to be the killer app, or that's just us projecting forward how we think the technology is going to develop? Are we just thinking about it in terms we already understand? Is there more potential there beyond, in your opinion, beyond what we can actually imagine?
1: Yeah, my guess is going to be something that surprises us that it's something that we don't think about today. Because anytime I think we have these step changes that kind of fundamentally change the way that we operate, they, they tend to be surprises. I think even like with something like generative AI and chat GPT, aren't necessary. I think the way those things emerge end up being surprising and the way that it fundamentally changes what you're doing. I think for the people that are working on it and immersed in it, it may not seem surprising, but I think to the public as these things emerge and then what actually gets traction with the public and what it is that they resonate with is the surprise element, right? That the engineers knows what's capable, the public knows what they like. When those two things are going to intersect in a way that really changes the way that society interacts is the unknown. right? I think that's where we're still not sure, like, what is the thing that the public's going to really all of a sudden say, like, wow, AR is amazing. I want to use this all the time and I never want to leave it, which is what happened with mobile phones and what happened with the internet. And I think a lot of folks are betting that's going to happen with AR, but we just don't know what is that thing. What's the surprise going to be? What's the thing that resonates?
0: So talking about it from the point of view of somebody who's working with the technology, then what are some of the ways that you all are using the technology now or developing what are some use cases you're developing it for that could possibly or possibly not be this killer app i assume you're all exploring every avenue with it so what sorts of things are you doing
1: yeah i think there's different different kind of vectors that different people are looking at i'm not at snap anymore so i don't <laughs> i'm not so i don't know what snap's working on today and i want to be careful about talking about Things that I did work on when I was there. But speaking broadly, I think that there's a lot of opportunity in location-based gaming. And as as amazing as Pokemon Go was and is, and the innovations that Niantic have been doing, in many ways it's they suffer from having a single gaming mechanic that you arrive at a, a point of interest, there's a geofence around that point of interest, you enter it, GPS is good at best at five, three three, four, five meters, it just roughly knows that you're there and then an AR experience is kicked off. And so you have, and so you you look at like the different, it's basically applying different intellectual properties to the same gaming mechanic. And it, you know, starts to get a bit stale over time. And that's also the reason that like Niantic has been invested so much into Lightship and having these like interactive AR experiences when you arrive at a point of interest, but you're still restricted by the point of interest, right? These little snow globes around a city where you can have an experience. Um, but you start thinking about the what happens when the entire city is enabled when you can have a game that persists no matter where you are in the city in indoors outdoors and it's like the the games that we play in unity or unreal where or in different aspects of vr where everywhere you go the game's happening you think about the same thing happening in reality everywhere you go that kind of persistent reality or mirror reality or augmented reality i think is something that could really engage people in an exciting way and there's obviously a lot of sci-fi and movies written around this premise but i think that's one of the drivers for having city scale ar is that you can have this persistent gaming experience around around it and it really taps into what makes ar so wonderful is that you can augment reality with all of these alternate treatments of it and that's something we thought about a lot of how can you make the world look differently once you've augmented it in interesting ways and how do you do that for the entire world versus just a, a single point of interest. So that that's one that I think was a common refrain amongst a lot of people, probably because we've seen so much of it in, our, in sci-fi and pop culture that a lot of people have envisioned this and so we all want to see it. And so it's already embedded in our subconscious that this is something we want because We've read about it so many times, and we've imagined it as we read novels or we watch something. But it's also not like the thing you need to do for day-to-day life. It's a luxury. It's an indulgence. So there's a whole other class of those things around navigation and shopping experiences and tourism that are very interesting. And that was another direction it might not be. As much as I talked about the surprise is it might be the slow burn, right, of that you just start adding these things that are, that are helpful in your day-to-day existence of knowing when the train's going to arrive because i can pop up and see it in an augmented way or navigating to exactly the thing that i need like you try to use gps and it's not going to get you to the door front but it's going to get you roughly somewhere close to where a building is maybe on the wrong corner the right corner who knows right but being able to precisely get you to exactly the place that you need to be facing in the right direction and persistently being able to see that and a lot of this also and it is probably obvious as you see where my hand goes I'm not talking about (laughs) like on the phone right I'm talking about classes which arguably is the other direction of looking at this that it's not an app problem it's a hardware problem that you know that maybe we have the apps are there but the modality is just totally wrong holding up my phone any more than I do so already, and especially in the navigation concept, is just a total disaster. And we even played around like doing our base audio, right? So that you don't need the phone up as a bridge to get you there. And it's definitely an important part, right? Eventually all these things will be integrated, but that's the other direction to go with it is that maybe it's not a killer app problem. It's just, it's like the hardware needs to get there. And then we're all waiting on the hardware and using that as an excuse not to figure out the killer <laughs> app, right? So it's total chicken or egg yeah, possibility so, there.
0: So it's it's clear to see that there's a lot happening In this space, let's say I want to use AR for enterprise applications or for some of these more utilitarian sort of applications you talk about outside of the consumer realm. And I come to you and I say, is it time? Is it ready? Would you say yes or no? Would you tell me to wait? Would you tell me to keep an eye on something? And if it's not ready, what would you tell me to do to prepare for the time when it might be?
1: That's a wonderful question. And um and I, I think again, it depends on the use case. I was talking to a friend who runs an engineering team for a, a big rideshare food delivery service. And he was telling me a fascinating statistic that for every second that they can improve a driver's delivery, either this was particular for food delivery, but I'm sure the same thing applies for like pickups, that if you can get that delivery person to the door or to the pickup at the restaurant one second faster, it's a billion and a half dollars per year on average that you if every if everybody's operating one second more efficiently it's another million and a half dollars of additional revenue and profit right because it doesn't cost them anything to get them there one second faster and you start improving that over time those savings add up tremendously right again if you can get the person directly to the door and directly to make the delivery or to make the pickup or to get the ride share right you know the amount of times that you know, you're know you waiting for the Uber or Lyft and you're on the wrong side of the street and then you have to get to the other side of the street or the car has to get to your side of the street, that's minutes, right? And those minutes add up. And I think from an enterprise perspective, you know, logistics runs the world, right? Aggregate that all of the logistics around all the world are spending lost or misconnected or slightly off adds up tremendously. And if in an augmented world where these things are like i'm looking and it's telling me exactly how to get there to the very last second and i'm not having to look at the phone or trying to look down into the to the car dash system and i'm having much fewer errors because the 3d reconstructions are way better and i don't have satellite interference in urban areas this stuff all becomes way better but again but it varies by the use case right if you can do ar the phone and that's good enough to improve things a little bit you can get some incremental improvement when headsets come along and that improves much more significantly, that becomes a lot more interesting. There's the nice thing for enterprises is they can dodge the social stigma. If if Amazon's telling all their drivers they need to be wearing a headset, they're going to go wear the headset. And if they look like gargoyles, who cares? <laughs> it's all good, right? They're getting paid to look like gargoyles, and it gets normalized immediately because instead of yes, showing up in brown shorts and brown. Uh, brown shorts and a brown shirt, they have a headset on also. And it's just like another weird thing that the delivery person's doing. So I think that side of things will probably see traction in surprising ways before that we do in the consumer space. But there's still like massive challenges, right? Like battery life is for if you're a delivery driver, you're out there for hours at a time working eight, 10, 11 hour shifts and the battery's got to last and we know the batteries are, are terrible and they don't last like the snap headset that goes out to developers is like 30 minutes and that's in ideal conditions so obviously that's, not that's rough. rough and the new leak stuff on the apple headset like the batteries has a cable to it and you're wearing it on your waist if the and that's for two hours two or three hours will be so that's so there, there's still lots of challenges to be had but uh, but also massive opportunities right when you have the confluence of these two things we'll get it sorted out eventually but but they're also not like easy software problems to go solve like battery tech is is crazy hard and challenging and there's real world physics problems that keep us from solving it in meaningful ways that's what makes it so tough right? Whether you're picking stocks or you're investing in R&D, trying to figure out like when's the RVR winter going to be over and when's the like breakthrough going to happen that enables these things. Like how long have we been talking about like Apple coming out with a headset and glasses and every year of <laughs> these number one prediction and every year it doesn't happen. <laughs> but so these physics problems are real and they're hard. and They're not going to be solved overnight. But when they are, the opportunity I think is massive and it'll be a probably another step change in how we how we do computing and how we interact with the world and each other.
0: My takeaways from what you just said, depending on your use case, you may be able to squeeze out some efficiencies that'll help save you a lot of money over time in an enterprise application. But the technology is by no means fully mature yet. There's still a lot of sticky problems that remain to be solved before you can unequivocally give somebody the the thumbs up and say AR is good for everybody now.
1: <laughs> yeah, but there there are totally things out there today you can take advantage of. Like Google has their geospatial API which is basically the backend API to their VPS for doing visual positioning and they have 85 countries mapped out and enabled for AR. Right? Like the rotational accuracy is a little dubious at times and it's it's not perfect, but it's complete. Right? You can use live view on your phone all over the world and it helps for a lot of things and that api is now available if like enterprises want to go out and try to leverage these things to do interesting applications and that's a huge opportunity and an interesting thing to take a look at that's out there today and it works and it has amazing coverage and like their team has done fabulous work to make that happen so it's it's not like it's all sci-fi right there's things out there that you can go do today and they're meaningful and impactful whether it's the right thing and it fits the use case for your business is a big question mark right but it's there and it's only going to get better so i think that's it's a lot more than just vaporware and promises at this point companies have made massive billions of dollars in investment and you can piggyback on that investment today and go out and start trying
0: to solve problems That's great. So the one last thing I wanted to ask you, we were emailing before this call, you talked about using NERFs for spatial computing. So I'm really interested in what, what applications are you exploring for this technology? And what are the potential challenges of using something like this for spatial computing, which in many cases relies on some really high accuracy data so it's a it's an interesting idea it seems a bit like a frontier use case right now but fascinating to hear what you're working on and what you imagine that's going to mean in the future nerfs a super exciting space and i think
1: it's exciting at two different levels one is just the really hard computational problem that they solved and then two is how quickly people are building upon that solve problem to make it applicable to just a wide variety of different use cases, and then also just how quickly they're solving problems, because so many smart people are working on it, and so many companies are investing in it, and so many university folks are publishing papers on it that um, that a lot of the hard problems that made it seem like NERF might not be usable for commercial or enterprise things has made it have bridged those gaps in times that are faster than I've seen happen and difficult computational spaces before but but it's also i think useful kind of just to take a step back in what is nerf right and yeah. why is it interesting and this it's neural radiance fields and traditionally the way you would do a 3d reconstruction something is a process that we talked about briefly in the beginning photogrammetry where you're taking pictures from a lot of different angles and then you're finding pixels in common between those different images and then using those kind of key descriptors to triangulate and then find positioning for a bunch of the pixels to create a 3D reconstruction of things. And a neural radiance field uses a different approach where you're tracing rays of of light, for lack of a better term, through a 3D image and then you're packing in these neural radiance fields to, they give a bunch of characteristics to everything that that ray shoots through. And then you reconstruct things using that approach. The cool thing is with that kind of volumetric approach of doing things is that it allows you to assume what something looks like even though you might not have an image of it. And so from just a practical standpoint, as you're imaging around things, you are you always end up with an angle that that misses something. Like we talked about it before with an aerial or satellite, it's hard to get the low angled storefronts because mm-hmm. it could be occluded, right? You have an awning over something. And same thing terrestrial, right? There's something around the corner that you can't see. And one of the cool things that neural radiance feels does is that it's basically using an assumptive technique to to predict what it thinks all of these angles are going to look like, even if it doesn't have data for them. And so it begins to fill in gaps and holes that you would see in traditional photogrammetry. Which is why if, if you go to the Apple or Android App Store and you can download something like Luma AI, and you go and you spin around something with your phone it creates these incredibly photorealistic interpretations of things and some of that's from the no radiance field of packing in all these hue and saturation and lighting things get captured really well but the way that it solves it and the reason it solves it is the same reason why it's able to fill in gaps and get lighting to look really nicely and then you can change that lighting with different kind of 3d software and so it, it does this really great Uh, techniques of of just making way better 3d models than traditional photogrammetry does in a side by side comparison neural radiance fields great for 3d modeling whether or not it's great for for spatial computing is a different question obviously if you have a better 3d model of the world it should give you better spatial computing but spatial computing is also talked about a little bit in the beginning of these key descriptors right when you have those pixels in common that allow you to do the 3d reconstruction most visual positioning and systems work on taking those key descriptors and putting them into a database and then when it sees a new image it tries to match the key descriptors from the new image it sees with its key descriptors that are in the database and if they can match the key descriptors it knows it's roughly looking at the same thing and then it can begin to figure out how it's where it's positioned and how it's looking at that thing which then allows you to get the location of where the person is but nerfs really don't have the same kind of key descriptor structure that traditional photogrammetry has but traditional photogrammetry is actually used to generate nerf so before you run a nerf you actually runs a photogrammetry software like Colmap map or alice vision or something like that and you get the camera positions and then once you have the camera positions then you run nerf and so even though nerf is an alternative is totally reliant on traditional um photogrammetry to run so if you have the camera positions and you can georeference the camera positions let's say and then use the nerf models to fill things in more accurately then there's a question, could you generate your key descriptors from NERF? And there's some nascent academic work on this. If I'd been better prepared, I would have gone back and looked to see who the authors were and who were the really brilliant people who were figuring this out. But there's work around that, right, and turning a NERF into a mesh and a lot of these pragmatic problems. But that's also the thing that's so exciting about NERF is so many people are working on it that these problems of like, how are you going to get to being able to generate the, the key descriptors to put into a feature database to power spatial computing? Like, All of a sudden, within weeks, people are publishing, right, and pushing out techniques and pushing out GitHub repos, which is the other awesome thing. It used to be like when academics or folks within a research lab worked on something, you got an academic paper with a bunch of equations, and you're trying to figure out how to take those equations, turn them into code. And then you're like, oh, but I don't have the training data they used. How do I apply this? I don't even know how they're structuring their training data, et cetera. But now, the vast majority of academics and labs are publishing all of that, right? You go, to something like papers with code or just cvpr or github and there's the paper there's the training data and there's the github repo with all the code which is I think also what's making these things happen so quickly and people's ability to build and move these things just because the foundation is there right you're not having to recreate it's there you just pick it up and start working with it and then you fork it you go in a new direction you do a new thing you publish your thing and these things spider and there's all these great like positive network externalities that get generated by it which is and all this is happening in the open almost all the stuff is licensed open source which makes the applicability of it and moving in these spaces super exciting so i'm really bullish on nerf and it and it connecting with spatial computing it's it hasn't happened in a like a broad commercial like it's applied and out there and somebody's using it or at least somebody could be and i'm just not aware of it actually i should say I, i'm 95% sure that's what Google's doing with immersive view and using that to help improve their their spatial computing infrastructure. That you look at immersive mm-hmm. view, it's it's they've combined the terrestrial view and the aerial view. Um, they've co-registered those camera positions and real-world geographic coordinates, and they're running one big nerf with both of them. And then you look at the example for London, and it's just brilliant lit it looks like a nerf. And if I were to reverse engineer it, that's what i would do to get to where they're at whether or not they're then using that nerve for spatial computing don't know but it obviously makes logical sense right that's totally what you would do if you were running that team at google i think at least so it's it's exciting it's there i think it's i think a lot of good stuff's going to come out of it in the long term
0: so if not now then probably very soon almost certainly yeah cool thank you i that about does it for me. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. This has been great. Yeah, thanks for having
1: me on. It's a real privilege and super fun to talk shop about this stuff. Obviously, I get way too excited. And <laughs> we all can <do. laughs> go on for way too long. I hope we haven't rambled too much no, no. on it, but but yeah, thanks for the opportunity. It was super fun.
0: Thanks for listening to today's podcast. Check the episode notes for links to the books, reports, articles, and other media we discussed today. You can find more episodes of Spatial Reality in your usual podcast spots. Leave us a review if you enjoyed today's interview. And so you know, I'm always looking for more experts to talk to. So hit me up on LinkedIn if there's anybody you'd love to hear from. See you next episode.